0: But when you have 75% of the emitters and representing about uh, the same amount of global GDP committing to net zero by 2050 or 2060, that trend to pricing carbon somehow is gonna be there. I think it's a big business. And I think, in a way, the big oil and gas companies have shifted their views on that. They want carbon to be
1: priced. They want to make a business out of it. Hello and welcome to the Parkview podcast. I'm Paul Henk, investment analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO at The Firm. Commodities have rallied strongly this year, off the back of expected demand and supply bottlenecks. The energy markets have been no different, with spot oil prices now nearing their five-year highs. With so much change going on in the sector, we've invited this week's guest, Roger B1, to give us his thoughts on these changes and to discuss some of the key themes in the global oil and gas industry. Over the past 25 years, Roger has built up a reputation for advising governments, oil and gas companies and financial institutions on the oil markets, the geopolitics of oil and some of the strategic shifts in the industry. Roger currently leads a team of analysts and strategists at IHS Market, advising over 150 asset managers, hedge funds and private equity firms on the macro environment for commodities.
2: So, thanks, Paul, for this introduction. Roche, it's always a pleasure to hear your views, and thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. I think for, for some people who may not be very familiar with what IHS Market is doing, perhaps you can tell us a bit about the type of work you're doing.
0: Thank you, uh, Usama, and thank you, Paul, for inviting me today. Uh, I think we're going to have fun. So I work at a company called IHS Market, and it's one of the largest provider of analysis, analytics, and data uh, around financial markets, energy, automotive, uh, transportation, supply chain, if you want. So we're in the business of providing hardcore data uh, and prices, obviously, and Providing the analysis to advise our clients, which goes from all the industrial to all the financial, if you want, uh, the the Fortune 500 plus, uh, on all of these issues at different levels.
1: How would you see the current state? Or could you give us a bit of an overview of the current state of global oil markets? And what are some of the key themes that you're focused on at the moment?
0: Yeah. So part of what my team does, correct? We analyze markets in general and oil in particular. And in in particular, what we try to do is to understand what I would call price regimes. Uh, I'm trying to understand how oil markets and energy markets in general evolve from two weeks to 20 years uh, strategically. So for the oil market, it's a very interesting time, correct? So we just went through the big COVID crisis. We're getting a lot of question about the shape of that demand recovery. Are we going to get back to previously uh, previous demand? How quickly do we get there? Uh, and what are the structural changes we're going to be seeing in the next three to five years in demand? But the biggest question we're getting really are around supply. And what I would call the carbon and capital constraint that is emerging for oil, and are we setting up this cycle because of those capital constraint uh, on supply uh, into a super cycle or a much, you know, a, a higher price regime than we've been uh, in the last, I would say, five years during the shale uh, uh, period? So a lot of questions about that, about the inflection point. We're seeing how structural, how cyclical, uh, how shale is reacting to this new environment, and we can talk more about that. Um, So those those are the uh, the biggest theme we've been asked. I find it very interesting because we have a lot of big questions to try to answer. How much of an inflection point the COVID crisis uh, uh, provide to the energy markets in general? How much an acceleration? towards green, how quickly the oil market evolves and the companies who, you know, are injecting capital there change their behavior.
2: At the very macro level, it would strike me that there are really two completely independent forces impacting the energy markets. And, you know, you mentioned the carbon constraints and and clearly the trend towards decarbonization is a a big theme. And, And the other thing you mentioned is shale, which is working in a way... in a a different direction. I think a lot of people may have missed how shale has created, in fact, a ceiling on oil prices because supply can come back very quickly to the market. And these two forces can work in almost in opposite directions. In in this context, you know, how would you capitalize on on this new energy system when you have great, such big regulatory and economic financial uncertainties? How do you, how does one navigate it?
0: Let, let me break it down in a in, in couple pieces I think uh, there's different things happening in different places sometimes they're related sometimes they're not but uh, it's a it's a very interesting puzzle that is emerging so so shale for the last uh, uh, seven years really provided that extreme elasticity of supply to prices prices go up uh, investment go up Uh, shale produced, correct? So we have created something that we really never had into the oil system, which is just in time supply, which killed this whole notion of scarcity, fear of scarcity, and and that scarcity fear set up price as much as fundamentals, if you want. If you're into a a, a resource where you don't know where the next barrel is going to come, small changes in demand would push prices quite a lot. Shales change that because suddenly you can inject capital, drill a well, complete it, plug it within, you know, six months. But while doing that, we put a lot of capital into it, but we destroyed a lot of capital because these companies didn't make money. I mean, they were spending about 120, 130% of their CapEx for years. (laughs) The crisis changes that because shareholders said enough is enough. We want you to change business model and to return capital. So now you can only spend 50, 60, 70% of your capex. The rest goes back to the shareholder. And that's changing that elasticity of supply, and we don't know how much. And we're in the middle of that transformation. This is really the first quarter that these companies have came up with results where they're showing they're only spending 50, 60% of their uh, of their capex. So we're into this question is how how long the discipline would last? Is it two quarters, four quarters, eight quarters? Is it forever? Are we seeing a realignment uh, uh, among this corporate uh, entities? Uh, We're seeing a lot of consolidation. Have we lost that ability of shale to, uh, to react. And that changes completely the complexion of oil market and prices, because obviously if you have less elasticity there, we're gonna look at other places where you can add barrels. The next group obviously would be OPEC and OPEC plus was Russia. So here there is a political dimension, what price they want, when will they bring it, can they bring it, are they investing? So those are the big question in, in the oil market. On the clean energy side, you have very different dynamics. Uh, The dynamics are dynamics of uh, government uh, mandating or uh, government incentivizing through uh, tax regimes. Uh, You have a whole discussion about ESG, where the capital is flowing, and uh, around rate of returns between these different energies, where where, where do you go? And most importantly, you have a technology and cost battle going on where the cost of these new technology is going down very, very fast. Different energies are a different uh, place in the cycle. Solar and wind are much more mature. Costs have really declined a lot. Uh, it doesn't need fiscal support to a large extent. Uh, it's really a maturing industry. Uh, hydrogen and carbon capture, very different place, still at the research. So the big question here is how you're allocating capital between all those different things. If you're an investor, uh, where do you make money?
2: And indeed. And so what, 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 you, what, what you just said, you said something very important. And actually, that is not exactly what I thought was the case, but it is very important. What you're saying is the COVID crisis has changed the dynamics Potentially, this environment has changed the dynamics in the shale industry and, and changed the supply elasticity of, of shale to rising oil prices, which actually means that the idea that shale will provide a ceiling to oil prices is not really very valid anymore.
0: Well, well we don't know that, correct? So two things. Uh, because in this change of environment, we don't know how strong demand is. So if demand grow by half a million barrels per day, so half a percent, if you want, every year. I think shale is still the ceiling on prices. If demand grows by 1%, it's more difficult. And we're talking with a very small number. I mean, the difference between half a percent and a percent uh, uh, in, in terms of like the long-term structural growth. And that structural growth is determined with ha- with what's happening on the clean side, on the regulatory side, is how much you're, you're con- constraining carbon. So if you constrain enough carbon to reduce the demand, so the incremental barrel you need to bring are not very big, it doesn't require a lot of capital. Costs are still going down, correct? I mean, we're in an industry which has overcapacity. So you still have pretty low cost. So this is kind of the the point of tension. Uh, How much the structural element of the energy transition are impacting demand versus how much capital you need to meet that demand on the supply side and how much elasticity you lost.
1: If we take a step back and we look at the energy markets from a broad level, is it fair to say that it's regulatory incentives at the moment, not prices, that are driving a lot of the investments in the space?
0: I don't know. I, I think energy is a business, is a big capital business, and it's a big government business. It's both at the same time. So technology drives a lot of capital. rate of return really drive a lot of capital, and governments in certain areas do have an impact through regulation on rate of return. Um, But policy with a big P matter, correct? So uh, I'm not going to deny that. Uh, Let's uh, take a couple examples, for example, from the policy side and the market side and how they play together and how policy use market. Um, The re-entry of the United States into uh, the Paris Agreement and that very sharp pivot, if you want, in terms of climate policy by the United States. It's a big deal in the sense that it changes the global dynamic by bringing the US into that conversation, which you know led by the Europeans, but also converging globally And the US was kind of uh, on the outside of it, coming back into it, provide a policy acceleration, which is really important. However, in the United States, we don't have the majority to put this into laws. And the nationally determined contribution of carbon, that how much you want to reduce, which is a policy, in the United States cannot be driven by the government if you cannot legislate it. So you're going to play through regulation mostly, not uh, uh, through law, uh, changing the law. And and I, because, of the, because it is the US, it's through the market. It changed completely the dynamic on the market. And this administration actually understands it. Uh, it hired people from the financial industry to help uh, to help them. I and mean, in, in Kerry's team, there is a, a, a number of private equity and hedge fund who are advising him. On, on in DOE, uh, they hired venture capitalists to think about energy. And the idea here is how do you use market to access to sharpen the inflection point and accelerate the transformation? So it's really. How you use both things at the same time, how you use changes in regulation to change market dynamics in a way to create a better environment for a certain amount of technologies to grow. It doesn't have to be a direct investment or incentives. It could be through taxes. It could be through R&D. It could be in Europe potentially through carbon pricing, carbon border adjustment mechanism, etc., etc. So energy has always been a business of government, but it's a business. It's a big capital business at the same time. These are very. Capital-intensive uh, industries.
2: A, that's an important statement. It is a very capital-intensive industry, and historically, when we were talking about an energy market where the the value, if you want, was in who in the ownership of the scarce resources, that's how profit accrued and distributed. Now we're talking about energy that renewable energy is not about scaled resources. and so the profits will really accrue to to whom and that's to go back to the, the, the comment that you you made earlier about about you know who's who, you know how are investors going to make money. Looking at it at the very you know macro level, I would think two things. Please tell me if I'm off on the wrong direction whoever actually owns the technology, owns the intellectual property of the technology. And, and the second would be would be the expertise in implementing. But
0: beyond that, is energy production going to be a profitable business? Well, we don't know if energy production is going to be a profitable business. I mean, that's what we're trying to understand. Uh, the technological forces are very powerful. So you're right. Uh, we're, we have changed the energy chain once you are moving to electricity, correct? In a way, if you're moving from fuel, you're moving to electricity, you can produce electrons in many different ways. How much money can you make? Most electricity market, by the way, are regulated. So yes. uh, and or there is an unregulated aspect of them, which could be profitable, but also you can lose your shirt uh, if there is sp- spike in prices like we've seen in Texas and you had hedge, uh, not hedge, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you, you can have uh, outsize uh, uh, changes. But you're right. The that rate of return of future energy is not clearly determine? And I think the answer is not in the resources. It's really in the business models. The energy industry was always very segmented. You had the oil people the gas people or the oil and gas. You have the the power. Now you have the clean tech, uh, uh, etc. But all of that is changing, correct? It has to merge. We're seeing the big carbon producer, uh, if you want, the big uh, uh, international oil and gas companies moving to the Carbon free, they're making all net zero pledges. Uh, you have the big utilities which going into unregulated foreign markets. Uh, you have private uh, private capital coming across this value chain, and suddenly the borders between these, between technology, between big tech, data producing power, managing carbon, transporting electron, all of these business are starting to melt a little bit together, and there is a we're in a big innovation moment uh, in terms of recreating the energy system. And again, here, the fact that the US is coming on board really changes the dynamic. I mean, this is, you know, it, Osama. I mean, uh, Europe is putting a very interesting um, regulatory framework to push those changes. They're very consistent and and pretty aggressive. So we're seeing the industry shifting. In the US, it's gonna be a lot more chaotic but a lot more creative in a way. (laughs) We'll destroy more capital but we're gonna try a lot more things. And that's really what the debate uh, is going to be, is are we creating new models which are sustainable? It doesn't completely devalue the owner of the oil and gas resources. We're going to need that for some time, but it changes the dynamic. You're right. Uh, uh, the uh, the air and, and the sun are free. If you can manufacture energy uh, at a very low cost from these resources, which we can now, I mean, now a, a solar plant, a, a greenfield solar or wind farm are cheaper than existing gas powered power plant in the united states i mean even with the capex versus the opex so it's changing these dynamics and once you know how to store energy in an affordable way it changes completely the dynamic because suddenly you can move to new form of energy hydrogen and uh, I mean, free resources, if you want, uh, with a big capex to start with or or, or smaller, uh, depending what the source is, but it changes the dynamic. We're in the middle of that. What the debate is, I think, is how fast that inflection point is. Is it an evolution or a revolution?
2: To go back to the, the question of government regulations, one of the tools governments were were really used, but so far unsuccessfully in this area, is is. Carbon credits and carbon trade, and this hasn't really been very successful. In part, you could argue regulatory loopholes, In part you could argue the market is really incomplete. It it hasn't carbon trading hasn't played a meaningful role in energy transition. Um, how do you how do you see this issue, the issue of carbon pricing, evolving? And you know what what's the sort of the the, the yeah. future framework for for this
0: to accelerate the transformation this capital transition, this energy transition, you're gonna to need to price carbon somehow, uh, implicitly or explicitly. Explicitly, we're talking about carbon markets. Uh, uh, you're right, uh, but the European carbon market has not been a, a smashing success, but it's changing actually. Uh, uh, the, the trading volumes are rising. Uh, uh, the, the the prices are increasing. There is a direction. So I think that carbon market will prove to be a success in, in in the years to, to come. It's moving there and it's changed quite a lot. China is creating regional carbon markets, which are not compulsory yet, but it's uh, it has done a lot of work on market designs. They did interesting things. They created eight different market design in eight different provinces. They looked at them, how they work, and then they decide which one's the best one. And they're trying to implement that. You're not forced yet, but you're putting in place that. Uh, in the U.S. is undetermined and uh, uh, very difficult. There is a broader debate about is carbon market the most efficient way to reduce carbon? is regulation just better, faster? And that's an important debate because it's the speed at which you're making the changes. But carbon will be priced. <laughs> and it is already priced implicitly. And over time, it will be; it'll continue to be implicit, but it will be a lot clearer. So let me explain what I'm saying. If you look at the valuation of the oil and gas companies, the big carbon intensive companies, the market has pegged them down. <laughs> Uh, it has changed its view of the final resources. Uh, there is an implicit stranded asset pr- uh, uh, price into them. There is a carbon price. There is a disdain of capital towards them. So their multiples are much lower and how much investors are, are, are willing to pay for a dollar of uh, profit from these companies is much lower. Okay, so there is an, an implicit price. We don't know exactly what it is. We can debate what it is. Is it the business model? Is it the carbon? Is it uh, the management? Is it the strategy? I don't know, but the market is pricing something. On the bond side, you are, are starting to see it too. So we have a good example of green bonds that are growing very fast. It's difficult to see exactly what the price, the implicit price is, but we can start to guess, correct? I mean, ENI, uh, the big Italian uh, uh, oil companies, is kind of splitting its green and, 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 and brown business. It's issuing bonds. And you see that the green bonds are better rated than their uh, uh, normal bonds, correct? There is a basis difference now. So there is an implicit price of carbon there. So I think the markets, and markets are very dynamic. I'm not going to have to teach you that are going to be able to, to price these things as we go as more informations come out, as more better understanding of emissions, of uh, carbon intensity, or path of transformation, etc. These things are going to come. Um, are we going to create a simple, great market that's going to price it everywhere in the world, etc.? No. Uh, cost of abatement is, is different. Uh, regulations are different, etc. But when you have 75% of the emitters and representing about uh, the same amount of global GDP committing to net zero by 2050 or 2060, that trend to pricing carbon somehow is going to be there. I think it's a big business. And I think, in a way, uh, the big oil and gas companies have shifted their views on that. They want carbon to be priced. They want to make a business out of it.
1: Do you think
2: in in you know under the the with the US entering the the Paris Agreement uh, re entering the Paris Agreement there is scope for having the, the you know more international cooperation in terms of the co- coordination somehow in terms of the carbon market because carbon emissions it's a you know it's it's perfect externality everywhere, right? You put pollutant in one country and you're impacting the whole world. And so if if carbon is priced differently and different, you know, you need it to be a genuinely free market across the world well, for this to work, right?
0: Or well, it it's, un- it's unlikely that we would have a global framework where you price carbon globally and you say, okay, I'm going to abate in Cambodia because it's cheaper than abating in Texas. It's not going to happen that way. Uh, you're going to have regional mechanism and it's going to create a lot of friction on trade. Carbon border adjustment, forcing people to, to price their carbon, saying no externality for you. You can't have a free lunch in my market. Uh, and that's kind of the danger is going to start to impact trade. And it does already. I mean, the, the Europeans are moving there and they're saying, we are putting a, a tough regulation on our companies. We have a carbon market. We're going to be expanding it uh, so, there's less loopholes, and there's no way we're going to allow you f- f- foreign or you know uh, goods coming in and not taking uh, uh, into account that externality. Once the European move there, I see the Americans moving there, then it changes the term of trade with China. Uh, how how fast China is willing to go. I mean, that's kind of the, the big question. How fast is China willing to go? How fast India or how capable India to capitalize cleaner energy system? And then when you look over 30 years, uh, at the end of the energy is demographics uh, of the billion people we're going to uh, add it over the next 30 years, 800 million are probably in Africa. So how do you invest in the African energy system to make it clean? I mean, those are the the the, the big macro questions around this issue of carbon. Uh, They're all on the table, correct? I mean, you have COP26 this year, so everybody's preparing for it. Having the US in changes really, as I said, the dynamic, but also the thinking. Uh, It creates different coalition. Uh, We've seen the US announce a forum for a net zero producer forum with Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Norway, and Canada. I mean, this is a new thing, correct? We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but they're investing different areas to have these discussions and create these coalitions. My
2: fear, I guess, as somebody who, who believes in free trade is that is that when we start talking about border adjustments that you know the question of carbon will be will end up being another form of protectionism in some markets or at least you used in some countries to create protectionism in in the absence of you know globally traded
0: correct I mean you still have the WTO so you need to work through that but you're right uh, but that's the purpose correct saying it's one planet if you don't comply it's impacting us so we're going to force you to comply and that's the way we're gonna do it. With other mechanism too, correct So through the Paris Agreement, there is transfer of capital. Uh, there is very importantly, I think, a technological cost curve. As Europe and the US come first, pay the higher cost and reduce the prices of technology. I mean, we and China, by the way, China really reduced the price of of, uh, uh, of solar and, and wind in a big way and solar in particular, uh, because it's really a manufacturing technique. Uh, as they go through that cost curve, it allows the rest of the world, and it will allow capital to flow because you need—you have new business model, you have cheap technology, uh, ability to deploy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, market mechanism that have been tested, and in a way, the, the cost went to the uh, early uh, uh, users. That transformation has to happen. A thousand flowers are blooming uh, and uh, it's uh, and, and I think market and investors have such an important role to play. And I think and this is where I focus on, correct, is how you make money into this at the end of the day. And the transformation in the business model is uh, is something really to watch.
2: Maybe maybe to step back a bit. Uh, the energy markets have historically been very, very intertwined with geopolitics. And now we have a whole new game for multiple reasons. One, because, because clean energy theoretically can be produced anywhere or almost anywhere. But even, even with, with the shale revolution in the U.S., in the U.S. becoming self-sufficient in energy, that also changes some geopolitical ramifications. China is not self-sufficient, and that's informing its behavior. You could argue over the long term, a move away from oil makes the Middle East less relevant. I mean... what. You know, what are your thoughts on the, on the geopolitical ramifications of what we're seeing?
0: No, I, I think it's important, correct? Energy uh, is, uh, is a big part of geopolitics. I, I did that a lot, a lot of years in my life, and I still do that, focus on the geopolitics of energy. Uh, new energy changes that, correct? Because suddenly uh, it's a manufacturing issue. It's not a resource issue. I mean, a rare, a rare mine, a rare earth minerals are not that rare. Uh, you're not going to have a war for rare uh, earth minerals and it's only an input it's not the product correct you need the minerals to do the battery Uh, you're not cutting off somebody from resources you're not going to have gasoline lines because you're not selling your oil anymore so it's a very different dynamic and sense of vulnerability for countries China has as much interest as the United States to move away from oil correct for the same reason uh, it's com- I mean China is a lot more dependent on the oil market than the U.S. is so China has an interest to electrify uh, and move away from oil and the Middle East if you want uh, even faster and that's one of the reason we've seen that push from China I mean there's clearly geopolitical aspect to it there is a environmental aspect but there's geopolitical and economic aspect if you dominate that manufacturing sector you're you're the middle east correct uh, uh you're the middle east of solar right now okay i mean they produce what 70 percent of the wafers so it changes that geopolitics this doesn't mean that the middle east goes away you're gonna need oil for a long time and the last barrels will be uh, uh in the middle east and oil has this particular element of being a wasting asset. A Wasting asset meaning that you have a new well, it produces and it disappears. So if you don't invest capital, your supply curve is pretty steep down. So you can adjust at lower level. Lower level of production doesn't mean lower prices necessarily. The adjustment could be painful, but other people are going to exit the market. And the natural decline, meaning that the supply is always catching the the demand curve somewhere. (laughs) So it reduces the Middle East, but it doesn't completely remove the revenue from the Middle East. So it gives the region more time to adjust in a way than uh, even in a lower uh, demand environment. But it's going to change politics. I mean, I I, I agree. I mean, at the macro level, um, it's a technological battle. It's not a resource battle. Uh, once, you ha- once you be able to create hydrogen from solar and wind in an economic way, and we could be 20 years away from, from it or 10 years, and I'll talk about it in a second, it changes completely everything because you're creating both a fuel and a battery at a cost uh, uh, competitive uh, from air and, and wind. And this is why hydrogen uh, attract so much both policymakers and I would say the large oil and gas companies. Uh, because they see a way with that fuel to reinvent themselves and become or stay energy giants because you have scale, you have capital. This is complex project management, engineering, et cetera. It's different than putting a wafer, correct? Uh, so hydrogen create a very different dynamic uh, uh, across the world and hydrogen you know three years ago was like pie in the sky now we're talking I mean just f- to, to understand the scale of it in 2020 we invest we invested about 50 million dollar in hydrogen we believe annually uh, 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 and in the last 10 years we uh, 20 years we probably invested 500 million dollar nothing we believe by 2030 the annual spend on hydrogen is fifty billion dollar. Very different scale. And that's kind of the, the wild card right now.
2: So in a way, I mean a lot of ESG investors basically shy away from the oil majors because, because they think this is this is not the sort of industry they wanna they wanna support. But your argument is that they they actually can have a very big role to play in, in the hydrogen or potentially. Uh... Yeah,
0: I, I, I think the big oil companies, when they look at the world in front of them, so you can go toward producing electrons through solar and wind, and some of them are doing that. But the big price for them is pricing carbon, actually. So carbon sequestration, CCUS, and hydrogen, which requires scale. Those are businesses they know how to do. It requires scale, concentration, capital, engineering, you know, everything which an oil big, large oil company is versus installing electricity and selling it to, uh, to you and I and putting things on our roof. I mean, this is not the business they're in. I mean, this is retail. Uh, they need bodies. It's not what they're about. They're about uh, engineers and, and design, and, uh, et etc. So that's the connection between the, the large m- multinationals in a way and government. They're going to need government support somehow in R&D or in regulation to help usher that outcome versus a decentralized outcome. And each of them is making different choices. It's a big spectrum. I stay in oil and gas. I do oil and gas and I'll try a little bit of CCUS. I'll try to shift more to hydrogen through my gas, my LNG, I'll make it hydrogen. Or I go, I start putting solar panels and and wind farm. So each of them is kind of, presenting itself or having a strategy from very aggressive to I'm not doing anything uh, or I'm doing very little, but I'm going to give a lot of money to my shareholder. It's a shareholder issue at the end of the day. Do you want to be in a company which is investing a lot and maybe not returning a lot uh, or a company which is going to return a lot, but uh, carbon footprint is bigger? What, what's your Tolerance to that. And question for you is uh, Do people really care only about carbon footprint or at the end of the day, it's returns, uh, uh, which stocks?
2: It's a slightly different return profile, I would guess, because if they are going to start investing a lot more, I mean, currently, a lot of the oil companies, their investor base are people who love clipping big dividends every year, right? If you have a shift towards them becoming basically in going into a phase where there's a lot more investment there's they could yep. become less of less dividend payers and, and that could change its investor base i mean it's a market and prices adjust and, and
0: yeah but you're, you're pointing the important point so we're seeing two things happening three things happening at the same time so you have the majors you're either return machine. They couldn't return in the last few years, so they borrowed to return. Now they're saying, "Okay, we're going to be able to return, but we also want to change our profile. Doing both at the same time is not going to be easy. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Higher oil prices will allow them to do that. So not investing in oil could be the way to go, correct? So they could be pretty aligned with with countries which need higher oil prices. Uh, at the same time, if you do that, if, if you're the resource holders that, if I have high prices, it might accelerate the transition faster. So if I'm, a country, uh, if I'm an oil producing country, which can take lower prices, let's say the UE or Russia, I want to produce more. So you start to see divergence in uh, strategies among the country producer about what's your time horizon and how much you need to keep assets in the ground. So that's an interesting dynamic. So if you go back to the shareholder, though, so you said you have the the, the return shareholders. In the U.S., think about it, the shale system was based on a shareholder base which wanted growth, 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 growth at any cost. And now these guys are trying to shift and become value stocks. I'm going to return 30% of my cash flow. Okay, Uh, how do you transform your asset your shareholder base from this to that. I mean, you wanted the high flyer who can double and triple their production over two years to suddenly returning 7%. Not the same people. So they're also looking for a shareholder base. The same for the... um, for solar and, and and battery company, I mean, these guys went through the roof. We spacked every single thing we could spack. Uh, so very diff- different profile. They're moving with technology. Interest rate changes the dynamic completely. So we're we're at a time when all these segments are looking for shareholder bases. That scrambling of the shareholder bases is very interesting.
2: One last question. You talked about what what is happening in the U.S., in Europe, in China. Maybe maybe if you can share some thoughts about how you see some of the emerging markets positioned. And here, I mean, other emerging markets position. In particular, I'm thinking of of Latin America, which is a region that you know some of the countries have important investments in oil, but also are potentially a big a big source for uh, carbon capture activities. I mean, how do you, do you see them, you know, sort of getting their act together or is it still a bit all over the place?
0: I mean, the, the two more dyna- dynamic oil producers in the next 10 years is going to be Brazil and Guyana in the world. So that's kind of interesting. These are the big discoveries that we had uh, over the last 10 years uh, in deep offshore. And this is why, where, when you're looking at, you know, the map for the next 10 years where new oil is coming, where it's concentrated. Uh, So they're still playing an important role there and a lot of foreign capital. Uh, on the energy transition side, I don't follow as well, but you're right, everybody has the resources, and Latin America certainly does. But it is here at the end of the day in terms of where regulation and market design really matter. So ability to have governments, with strategies, uh, government with regulatory bodies capable of doing that, and to accept the initial cost. Correct? There is a cost in terms of uh, uh, the price of electricity and subsidies, etc. Over time, I think that, that cost become an economic lever, correct? So it, it disappear over time. Uh, and overall, I would say uh, energy transition is probably uh, GDP neutral in terms of uh, overall cost for an economy over time. But it's the capabilities of government to, uh, uh, to, to, to regulate and regulate well, design markets well. Uh, so I think in Latin America, it'll be very patchy.
2: I think places like like Brazil, can potentially play a huge role in carbon capture activities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and it may even be a net positive for them compared to oil uh, today, but politically, we're far off from seeing from seeing that becoming a priority.
0: Uh, Nature-based carbon sequestration is going to be important. We're going to need all of that. But this requires a lot more international cooperation and being able to price carbon across borders, correct? So Brazil would benefit from that uh, if you have efficient uh, carbon market, carbon pricing, not only that, being a, a really uh, able to account uh, who's offsetting what, the whole offset business is quite complicated and we don't know if the offsets are real or not. How do you make sure that uh, the offsets are not calculated five times? Uh, so IHS market actually are, uh, we have a registry now for carbon offset. So uh, uh, we're trying to kind of centralize all that data to make sure that they're not used many times. <laughs> But that's the type of things that Latin America can play a role, obviously, uh, and and Brazil in particular. But it requires uh, international cooperation and clear country strategies. And energy transition has been in... A lot of countries really politicized to a degree where it's very difficult to move, not in Europe, but in, not in China, uh, but in, uh, in the U.S. and Latin America, it has, and it has a, a popular populist uh, issue it needs to, to contend with.
2: On that note, I think given that what we're seeing in terms of the likelihood for International cooperation, as you are, you know, as you mentioned a bit earlier, maybe we shouldn't put our hopes too high on that front, but uh, but maybe one has to, uh, you know, the world needs to learn to walk before we start jogging.
0: Maybe uh, you're right, and I think this year is going to be important. We have a series of uh, of meetings of G20 finance minister. We have COP26, and you have U.S. leadership, and U.S. leadership matters, even if it's. Uh, Weaker and uh, uh, if it's much more challenged, but uh, it always matters because it brings that market might with it. Thank
2: you very much, Roger for taking the time to talk to
0: us. Thank you for inviting me. That was fun.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.